You're listening to The Nerve, an English at WIT podcast. Today, our topic is Shakespeare, and we'll be talking about him, especially in relation to our first year module, Shakespeare Drama and Film. And in addition, our resident Shakespearean conspiracy theorist, Dr. Kate McCarthy, is back from maternity leave, or was she on maternity leave? Um, And we're delighted to have her in studio with us back again, which is great, alongside our wonderful first year students, Bavina Sullivan and Dean Cusack Lynch. So I'm actually going to come to you guys first, actually, because I want to know your previous relationship with Shakespeare <laughs> how long have you been seeing him for and is it an intense relationship um, so baby let me come to you first like would you be one of those people I mean I know at school I was kind of slightly fascinated by having to study Shakespeare um, you know the language is something that really hits you when you're whatever 15 and you yeah. first well probably 14 is it I can't remember what age you first encounter but um, it yeah it's, it's, it's the difficulty of it and then the fact that you, you talk to your friends about it and say yeah. What are we doing this for? Like, mm-hmm. what is the point of this? Can we not do something that, you know, is applicable to us? Did you feel that way? Like, I, I changed my mind after mm-hmm. that. But um, how did you feel about, well, about it? Well, the first one I did in junior cert was Romeo and Juliet. Mm. So, like, you just know who Romeo and Juliet. You know the story before you even know who wrote it. Like, yes. almost. Um, so it was there was a lot of excitement about actually seeing it and like like knowing what's going on with the whole thing. But there was a bit of like, there was a bit of kickback when we kind of actually opened this book and it's almost impossible to understand. Like, you, it's really not enjoyable to read that much. <laughs> and yeah, so there was a lot of people being like, oh, this is awful. And none of this is that sad. And Juliet's an idiot. What the hell is Romeo doing? <laughs> All this stuff. Um, but yeah, so there was, I was a bit, I was, I, I had a little bit of experience with Shakespeare before because we, my dad I was an actor for a while in town, so he loved um, Midsummer's Night Dream. Mm. So I knew that one quite well. So I was kind of expecting this awful, confusing language and having go back to my dad and be like, what does this mean? Yes. Please Mm. tell me. So it wasn't too bad. Yeah. Yeah. I actually remember, I'm just remembering back now that my my very first encounter with Shakespeare was when I was five, um, when my sister who was, you know, 11 years older than me. She was quite, you know, she's quite young doing her leaving search. She was 16, but they were doing Hamlet for the leaving. And at the time, there was no real option. I mean, we didn't have a video player or anything like that, but we did have a record player and we had a record (laughs) of Hamlet. Um, And I think my mother thought I was going to be a prodigy or something. God, it was (laughs) such a disappointment. But um, she she used to play this record of Hamlet and and herself and her friends used to gather in the one house to listen to it. I mean, because, you know, again, it was just they had only had the one copy. Um, And afterwards, then, you know, like I used to sit around and I used to listen to it because I just thought it was very exciting for something. For some reason at the time, you know, being five, I don't know how I had the concentration to sit there. (laughs) I probably didn't stay there all the time. But anyway, we were sitting down then watching uh, Mastermind one night and there was some obscure quote and the question on no. Mastermind was what <laughs> Shakespearean play that. is this from and I and I well I used to call it Piglet <laughs> so, so I piped up Pig, that's from Piglet. <laughs> and sure, my mother thought, God, this is great, you know, but unfortunately it didn't last. Anyway, um, but yeah, even at the time, there was something that chimed with me, I think, at the mm. time. Um, and I saw Hamlet recently up in the gate mm. and thought it was a, just a fantastic, fantastic spectacle of a version. What about you, um, Dean? What was your experience of, of encountering Hamlet first? 
Um, well, I'd say Hamlet I did for Leave Insert, my first... Did I'd I say, say Hamlet? I meant Shakespeare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd say my first introduction to Shakespeare was, do you know the 1997 movie of Romeo and Juliet mm-hmm. with mm. Leo and, and... The Baz Luhrmann. Uh, that yeah. one, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I did uh, The Merchant of Venice and uh, Hamlet then in secondary school. And, I, you know, I think there's always that kind of stigma, that, that kind of thing with Shakespeare. It's like, oh, the language is so hard. But I am... Um, I loved it. I really enjoyed the kind of the narrative of the play and where it went and the character depths and their struggles and tragedy. You know, I know I really, I really like Shakespeare, especially, especially really the characters and their depth in yeah. certain ways. Because I think one, you know, the the language might be off putting at the very start, mm. yeah. but when you when you're able to access the story and it demystifies the language a little oh, bit, makes it sure, so yeah. much easier. It yeah. does, yeah. and no, now you have sure. things like um, you know, those websites that kind of put it into regular parlance oh, yeah. for you, mm. which are really helpful as yeah. well. But I think sometimes the sound of the language when it's read is just beautiful as well. Um, Kate. You know, yeah. this is all on the premise, based well, on the premise. This is all, yes, well and good. But he didn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> he didn't exist. He did exist. We know he existed. Yes, now, you're one of these wasn't. people, aren't you, that, that likes these conspiracy theories. Um, I'm not sure how convinced I am about them, really. Um, but, yeah, tell us a little bit. So, I mean, there, there's all these kind of possibilities. Mm. If if Shakespeare, I mean, there's no evidence that Shakespeare was particularly well educated, for example. No. Um, but there's also not that much evidence to suggest that it wasn't him, is yes. there? Yes. I mean, if I could take you to some of the greatest hits of the evidence of, yeah. of perhaps, you know, why we question his authorship. So firstly, there is no evidence that he was ever paid as a writer. But that doesn't mean that Shakespeare, the man from Stratford-upon-Avon, didn't write the plays. Mm. There is no evidence that he had any education, as you say, so he didn't have fluency in French or Italian. um, And and wasn't well-travelled. Wasn't well-travelled, that we know of. Can I take you back to the year 1785 for a moment? Oh, please do. (laughs) I can't imagine anything Uh, I'd like more. A man called James Wilmot who lived near Stratford went on this kind of fact-finding mis- mission to see if he could find just any shred of evidence, a piece of paper, a book, something that would link the man from Stratford with the plays. And he found absolutely nothing. But he shared the view that it was Sir Francis Bacon, a kind of contemporary mm. at the time, who was one of the kind of leading men who could have written the plays. Um, and he shared that view with another man called James Cowell. And James Cowell went on to write uh, the following. And James Cowell said, There is nothing in the writings of Shakespeare that does not argue the long and early training of the schoolman, the traveller, and the associate of the great and the learned. So this is where the authorship question really comes from because for those people who believe that the Stratford man didn't write them he didn't write them because he wasn't educated he wasn't of the right background he Mm -hmm. wasn't of the right class he didn't understand falconry (laughs) you know he couldn't (laughs) he didn't play lawn tennis he couldn't possibly have understood the goings on at court there were you know a lot of things to do with class Mm. that are built into the plays that somebody from within the inner circle of the royals would have to really know in order to write them Um, so and a lot of the, his contemporaries, Christopher Marlowe was a university man, so was Ben Johnson. So there is this tie between being universe, being educated at university and being a great scholar. So that mm. is kind of yeah, problem number one. But it's, it's a dangerous myth, you know, to suggest that creativity and works of genius are only within the reach of the well-educated. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I mean, there's no <coughs> concrete evidence to suggest that Francis Bacon 
was the author either. I mean, that's the problem. Yeah. The absence of, of evidence is not evidence, is no, it? No, no. And like other things like there were no books found in, in Shakespeare's house when he died. Yes. His will, um, his signature is, is badly written, but other research has shown that actually in Elizabethan times, it was very common to spell your name in a number of different ways. It's not like today where mm. Kate McCarthy, oh, I spell yeah. it one way, you know, and it goes on like that. Yeah. Um, so... The evidence, as soon as you come across a piece of evidence, it is, or, or a lack of, yeah. it is often, there is an, an, an opposition to it in another quarter. So this is why it is such a fascinating conspiracy theory, because you can always find the kind of the rebuttal yeah. you know, to, 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 to your argument. And I was listening to that podcast that you sent me yeah. as well, which is like the, what was it called? It was like fake history. Yeah, fake, fake history. history. Fake and news. It's, yeah, fake news. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like there's millions of episodes oh, yeah. of that um, where they kind of explore different, I, I suppose, really big um, assumptions that we make about yes. um, history. But, um, you know, the idea that somebody else wrote those plays. I mean, the, the the presenter of that podcast kind of goes down through mm. all the all the mm. different options and comes to the conclusion, well, you know, there there might mm. not be evidence that Shakespeare travelled or was well educated, mm-hmm. but there is equally no evidence to suggest that anybody else yeah. could have written them. Or there's some evidence to suggest that he didn't. You know, we no. have those last mm. years. Yeah. You know, yeah. where no one knows what has happened. And I suppose that's the thing you fit on Jenny, like it's the we come at the authorship question from our point of view, you know, so and, and it actually reveals a lot about the assumptions we make and mm. about and how we consume culture and, and what we expect cultural people, what kind of how we expect yes. them to conform. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that like none of these questions came up until like yeah, the 18th century exactly. or whatever, you know, before then mm. people were perfectly happy, happy to, accept. to accept that it was him and Absolutely. didn't have and, and during his own lifetime, nobody questioned it. But now, yeah. you know, more and more people do. Yeah. But I mean, plenty of very learned scholars do. So it is kind of. Yes, it's tantalising. It I mean, as, it's tantalising. <laughs> since you the mentioned word. the podcast, I have been. <laughs> Digging deep. <laughs> There's a lot of very convinced people on both sides out well, there. Do you not get the question as well then? Say if, um, so if the those weren't written by Shakespeare, mm-hmm. why is there the idea that it was written by Shakespeare? Yeah. Like, why do they think they were? There's, I mean, a couple of, yeah. There's a few, I suppose there's a few reasons, but one of them is, I mean, on many of his plays, his name is on mm, the plays yeah. and that wouldn't have been a very common thing at the time, no. you know, um, during that period that it, you know, a lot of plays were anonymous or the name, the name just simply wasn't on yeah. it. So yeah, it from really a, it meant that he was somebody. And I suppose as well, it was the publication of the first folio, folio in 1623 yeah. by his friends, Hemings and Condit, who who kind of put his plays together, put put the the plays in the in those genres, mm. and kind of dedicated to him. And there's a the, about the Swan of Avon. So from that kind of moment, sixteen twenty three, he was always the yeah. man from Stratford. He was always yeah. associated. Yeah with the plays. And so that was only something like seven years after he died. Yes. And, you know, right. people would say, well, why wasn't it produced during, while, he, while he was living? But mm. it would have been very unusual for something yeah. like that, for a publication like that to even be produced yeah. at all. Yeah. Never mind, you know, simply seven years later. So seven years wasn't mm. that long a time, no. actually. Mm. Um, and again, at the time, nobody questioned that that wasn't him. Mm. No. So you would you would kind of think, well, there's probably more evidence that points to him than, than yeah. away from him. But yet that it is such a, an unusual thing that, you know, to, to suggest that he died without any books in his house yes. or that he that he that he didn't 
he hadn't travelled to these other places. No, that we know of. That we know of, yeah. <laughs> but that he that it seemed he said to be that he was illiterate. You know, his signature. Yeah. You know, that, yeah. that's that's the narrative that is given to you. That yeah, that he like, might. You know, yeah. and there is a, quite a lot of evidence um, about you know, he bought he, the man from Stratford a huge amount of property. He was in debt a number of times. Mm. He took a number of people to court. So again, there's this picture painted, like perhaps like it's quite difficult to put that kind when you read that character it's quite difficult to put him on the same pedestal as we put the author of potentially yeah. the greatest you know work of, of literature ever ever to exist and also that you know I love that question as well that it poses if we found out that it wasn't him yes would it then would it change well, so, our yeah. perception yeah I mean yeah. if you found out you know that what we're studying at the moment what you do about nothing if that was written by somebody else would we Suddenly, you know, I was talking today in class about about Shakespeare himself being just this great wordsmith and that that's Mm. actually, you know, becomes a theme of the play. And, you know, if it wasn't him, then would we really would would we kind of ascribe that? level of genius to the author in the same way. I don't know. Like his name is a selling point. More than yeah, anything. yeah, absolutely. He's Definitely. a brand. Yeah, He's but a brand. you get that as well with just actors. Say if you're like, oh, she's a TV actor, but then you're like, oh, she has like Shakespearean experience. Yes. You're absolutely. like, whoa, yes. very professional. Yeah. It's a rite of yeah. passage, isn't yeah. it, for, mm-hmm. for a- serious actors yeah. to be involved in Shakespeare. Uh, you know, even as we mentioned earlier, Keanu Reeves. So, <laughs> Keanu Reeves. <laughs> so what we're studying at the moment is we study in that module, we study uh, three Shakespearean texts. It used, you, you're very lucky, by the way, because it used to be five, wasn't oh it? Five? Yeah. Oh, or maybe oh, even man. six. Yeah, yeah. When we started teaching this, there were, there were far mm. more. We've paired it way back. Yeah. Um, so we study Richard III, Much Ado About Nothing, and Coriolanus as well. Something that Coriolanus is one of those ones that we added a couple of years ago just because it's not one that you tend to come across mm. in, you know, um, in other modules so we thought it might be interesting and especially because this module is partly you know to do a large part to do with film and Ray Fiennes produced this really interesting adaptation of Coriolanus um, but you know it, it's interesting to see how the film versions speak to you you know um, and with Much Ado About Nothing we we contrast we have two very contrasting um, versions so we have the Kenneth Branagh version and we have the Joss Whedon version. Also, you know, two very famous directors, as you were saying, yeah. Baby, you know, this, this this idea of calibre, you know, we associate Shakespeare with Kenneth Branagh, yes. you know, yeah. very much. Um, not so much with Joss Whedon, who'd no. be more famous for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and, yeah. you know, movies. the Avengers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. And yet I remember when we decided to add the Joss Whedon version, we kind of thought, ooh, this will be very popular, you know, because, <laughs> you know, Joss Whedon, ooh. And, and yet students, we were only just talking before we came on air there about how students are a little bit resistant to it mm. actually Dean how do you feel about the the how do you feel about it about <laughs> Joss Whedon um, I have mixed feelings about it I kind of <laughs> like the mod- like the modern aspect of it but I really I really don't like the the black and white kind of like I do like black and white films don't get me wrong I love old films um, but I just I don't I don't like it in this sense. I, f- I like I know it's a comedy, but I just find there's a very kind of cold aspect to it, mm-hmm. um, which I'm not a big fan of. Now, the Kenneth Branagh one is 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 over the top in a lot of ways, <laughs> but uh, I would actually be more in favour of Kenneth Branagh's one rather than uh, Josh Whedon's Josh Josh Whedon Josh, Josh Whedon yeah. sorry, uh, Josh Whedon's version. Now I've only seen. I actually haven't watched the full film yet. I've only don't seen tell me that. Sorry. Well, we have time. I have, I have time. I have time. <laughs> yeah, I have Netflix later on. I could yeah. be watching that. You know, um, but um, no, I, I've only watched a portion of it and I would still be more in favour mm-hmm. of the 
Bar no one. Well, I have a bit of a theory about perhaps why students prefer, you could say, the classic rendition mm. o- yeah. over the modern. And I wonder, is it a linked often to the way that so we're so used to receiving messages about how Shakespeare should be done mm-hmm. or that, that any deviation from that kind of jars with all with this idea of, of, of who this man is and how his work should be treated. Yeah. You know, it's the same happens like the production you were talking about, Jenny, uh, in The Gate. Mm. Um, uh, the Hamlet was played by a woman, Ruth Negga. And maybe now, I mean, there's been a lot of, like Fiona Shaw famously has mm. played, you know, R- Richard III. So maybe that's not such a you know, such a, a very novel and contemporary yeah. thing to do now. But, you know, it, it's still challenging what we, our expectations yeah. of what we think yeah. Shakespeare should be. And that always, I think, causes you to think anew about the work. Yeah. Especially when it's in a genre that we're not fully, we don't fully recognise because mm. we do have versions of Shakespeare in very familiar and comfortable genres like mm. teen comedies, for example. Yeah. So, you know, you have 10 Things I Hate yes. About You or She's the Man and yeah. films like that, which are, which either have Shakespeare very, you know, first, front and, and centre yeah. or they're a little bit more subtle in their rendition of Shakespeare. Yeah. Mm. But because we're in this, we're in a school hallway with the yellow lockers or whatever, whatever and it feels like we know it yeah it's familiar so yeah, yeah so it puts Shakespeare into our kind of everyday world yeah. whereas I think with this Joss Whedon version you're not entirely sure this isn't the body comedy that the Kenneth Branagh version yeah. is yeah. Um, so then what is it and definitely you've only seen the beginning you're probably <laughs> still going what the hell is this um, <laughs> yeah. and, and and also you have that kind of incompatibility in a sense between the modern dress and, and Joss Whedon's house which is where this was filmed and you know the swimming pool and mm-hmm. everybody going around with their cocktails mm-hmm. and you know like I don't know fancy food and whatever um, and then Shakespearean verse yeah. which and we were talking about this in the tutorial the other day where the idea of you know publicly shaming a woman because you believe her to be mm. unfaithful, even though there's no evidence to support that, mm. but doing that in a modern yeah. setting seems so okay. completely bizarre. Mm. It doesn't mesh. It, it doesn't yeah. mesh. So, so I think I can understand that resistance mm. in some ways, and yet I I love I love the idea of putting Shakespeare like just having normal clothing and a setting that's kind of more Hollywood yeah. Hills, yeah. Uh, um, and a normal Shakespearean verse mm. too. I I do mm. enjoy that. Yeah. What, what do you think? What babe? I feel is well though with Josh Whedon that he, what he didn't do is go completely ridiculous another way you were talking about something that's familiar to us like a school hallway mm. whereas with The Lion King it's yes. Hamlet yeah. but mm. it's just completely abstract to us and it's completely different but it's still the same story mm. so I feel like he got caught in a middle ground almost and that's why people are resistant to it it's yeah. not a singular thing yes. you know whereas the Kenneth Branagh one is so over the top and is completely embracing what it is where it feels mm. like Josh Whedon is more reserved and not really going for it yeah that's interesting you know, and of course like that's another thing that you've raised that I mean so and we've talked to this before in a previous podcast Shakespeare was it Rhymes and Rhythms it's on the WT <laughs> website check it out and, but that idea that Shakespeare uses story I mean very few of Shakespeare's plots are original to him you know he was mm. he's basing his work um, on, on other stories that were out there so of course then that's why it is quite you know not quite easy to adapt them but that yeah, we you know have. we under, like we understand a father fighting with a son you know those are familiar yeah. uh, relationships to us so what happens then when you turn around and you say but the man from Stratford didn't write them you know you mm. you, you shake so many things yeah. you know but but by questioning his authorship and mm-hmm. i think that's why yeah the, the conspiracy theory is 
you know, it's it's such a you just can't get over topic. it. Kate, <laughs> no, I can't. And and I and I never know. Sometimes I absolutely believe, like the the kind of the 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 teacher and the you know humanity scholar me absolutely believes William Shakespeare, who's born in Stratford, wrote those plays, mm. and then. You know, when you start looking at the like actual factual evidence that we have, I kind of sort of sit back and go, mm. or maybe there was just a, a group of them writing together. You know, theatre is so collaborative, mm. and just you know, he was that little bit more strategic and got his name on the page. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what about the sonnets and stuff, though? Yes. Oh, there, well, there's a so, lot of hilarious uh, conspiracies. Oh, really? Yeah. One of the so there's the Stratfordians, the people who believe. William Shakespeare and Stratford wrote the play and the anti-Stratfordians mm. so the anti-Strat and one of the things that both sides try to do is often align things that are happening in the sonnets with the personal life of oh, the yeah, newest yeah. candidate but that is absolutely flawed yeah completely like absolutely that. completely so for example Edward de Vere uh, who's probably the most likely candidate uh, candidate apart from Bacon and who speaking of film is the subject of anonymous uh, Reese Iffens played him in a role oh, yeah. in Emmerich film I mean completely historically <laughs> hilarious um, but uh, Edward de Vere like, again kind of had this maybe suspect relationship um, with somebody like and you know the sonnets are written that suspect relationship and there there is this great mapping of uh, de Vere's life with the life of Hamlet speaking of that play mm. you know Hamlet's father is dead de Vere's father has died uh. he's he's a ward of Lord Burley and Lord Burley had a daughter called Anne and Lord or de Vere uh, rejected her just like Hamilton and Ophelia. You know, so sudden, the conspiracy uh, very quickly it becomes... Very tenuous. Yeah, <laughs> very tenuous. Um, but yeah, so the, so the sonnets are often used to align or not, or, you yeah, know, looking yeah. for evidence there, which is a much too modern approach and incorrect. We never know what the author thinks. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> yes, I know. You learned that in third year. <laughs> you learned that in first Oh, really? They're, yeah, they you know they learned it very, the hard way last oh, yeah. last semester. Lots of long essays. <laughs> um, so I suppose coming back to the module that we have, um, you know, what is your favourite? You know, you mentioned the Lion King there, baby. Mm. Like, would that be your favourite adaptation of a Shakespearean work? Would you have a favourite? Mm. Is there is there something on the module like? Did you enjoy the the Richard Longcrane version of Richard yeah. III? You know, have, what do you think of? Of, of the selections even that we've made so far. Yeah. So, um, like, I think it is funny. We, we watched um, the opening section of the, the two Much Ado About Nothing mm. versions uh, on Monday. And, you know, I was, as we were saying before we came on here, like part of me was wondering, ooh, should I be showing this <laughs> in class? I, you know, there's there's quite a lot of kind of mild nudity <laughs> yeah. um, and bawdiness and to the time <laughs> <laughs> well according to Kenneth Branagh it is. Um, but it's what? you know it's absolutely not where the play begins no. if you look at the, no. <laughs> yeah. the, the actual play um, but it is it is something that students can get on board with pretty easily yeah. I think that mm. play or that that film um, what do you think what do you, what's your take on it did you enjoy the I did I enjoyed it because it's just the most ridiculous reaction to people coming back from war just for <laughs> yeah. everyone to just suddenly get mildly naked yeah. um, and it was just it's kind of like you're going to kind of get caught in a tizzy with it as well you're kind of like what is going on okay this is happening now look at them they're coming in on the horseback it's glorious the sun is setting it's beautiful it is beautiful and you're kind of like whoa all this and then um so you just it kind of like drops you in to the bath that all the rest of the men are going into yes. kind of going okay 
like we're here now. Whereas with the then you get with the Josh Whedon when you're kind of it's a cold entrance. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a much it's then you're you brought into a very personal moment. Yeah. So at the beginning you, of that yeah. film, we have. Uh, Beatrice and Benedict who are alone in a bedroom and something has happened mm. she's turned away from him it's all very quiet you know you have um, kind of diegetic sound of him putting on his pants and mm. picking things up off the floor but other than that we have nothing yeah. Um, yeah. so it's very quiet yeah. and it's completely the polar opposite mm, you know yeah. this swelling music that you have in the Branagh version yeah. <laughs> is completely a different tone yeah. as you said and we were talking about that weren't we it's like Branagh wants you to be part of the movie whereas mm. Josh Whedon is kind of like you observe yeah, yeah. you know Mm-hmm. And he's given us a bit of context. What's happened yeah. bef- between them beforehand, before the, the the story proper starts, you know? Yeah. Um, and and where do we go from there with their with their kind of love story after yeah. mm-hmm. that? Um, so would you say like? Did you like you like the Branna version? What about Richard the Third? Yeah. I love. I really enjoyed Richard the Third. Mm-hmm. Actually, I thought it was fascinating. I kind of like the way they modernized it. A bit where it's it's something you can understand and be like oh he's the bad guy but how come I'm feeling sympathetic towards yeah, him yeah so this is the Richard Longcrane mm-hmm. version from yeah. 1995 in case anybody hasn't seen it who's listening um, and it is kind of a a repositing of the story to this kind of alternative fascist Britain of the mm. 1930s-ish. Mm. Um, yeah, and we're in... So so we've lots of military uniform and lots of the, the kind of paraphernalia that would go along with yeah. that particular vision of the time. Um, and yeah, there is something, again, something that, that we recognise, and we've talked about this in the classes where we have all of these different influences mm. like from films that we've already seen and yeah. stars that we already know. Yeah. yeah, Is that what lulls you in, do you think? I think so. Like you kind of get a bit, um, like you see faces you recognise and you're like, oh, even though they're speaking kind of complex language, you're like, mm. oh, that person. Yeah. Mm. yeah, they're on my side. They're it's trying sti- to get yeah. me to understand. Still Iron Man. Yeah. It's still Robert Downey yeah. King. You're walking in there. It's, um, yeah, it's quite comforting in a way to see like Brent's and that's why again with... Josh Whedon's verse in that you're kind of like a bit more taken back because you don't know who anyone is. Yeah. They all look quite similar as well. And they're all, they're actually all regular Josh Whedon collaborators, actually. Yeah. Oh. Um, they've all, um, most of them have been in other series of his or films of his mm. in the past. So they mightn't have had huge roles, but they would all know him quite well. And he yeah. did it after Avengers as well as a kind of a break from that yeah. chaos. Um, <laughs> so it's a much smaller paired back version yeah. of, uh, of that same story. Mm. Um, and I suppose it brings us back to Shakespeare um, himself a little bit because it's the idea that if Shakespeare was alive today, you know, you get the sense that maybe he might be writing movies. Mm. Um, he jumps off the page always, even mm. if you don't like the version. There's mm. something about his his stories that are absolutely yeah. universal, isn't there? What I think is that he gets people very well, as in like the he writes characters because mm. with Richard III that... You, you get those insane jealous thoughts where you're like, well, if she's going to go away and have a great life, I'm going to pretend I'm having a better one. Yes. You know, I'm going to put up a nicer Instagram. I'm going to look better, all these things. And you get those kind of like insidious kind of thoughts. But yeah. you like as a person, you try and put a stop to it. Whereas... That you bit, try and you put try. it down. You try. <laughs> but Richard, this is Richard. Like Richard's heard is the embodiment as if those thoughts got away from themselves. Yes. And you've got to have that megalomania kind of mm. power. Mm. And actually, you know, again, if you were to imagine William Shakespeare being alive today, imagine Richard being alive today. Yeah. What, yeah. Ma- what oh use God. he'd make of Instagram, lads. <laughs> he'd be all over that like a rash. Yeah. Um, yeah you know, so. I'm prop- I mean, okay, the, you know, 
Richard is alive today, I would say, you know, there is mm, well, yeah. corru- mm. corrupting force of male Some power degree, yeah. <laughs> somewhere in the world. And we can't pinpoint it, yeah, though, can we? No. <laughs> <laughs> must, one must be careful. Absolutely, <laughs> um, one must be very careful. And But it, like, you raise a good point, like uh, the way that Shakespeare understands us. And um, like one of the articles I read by a guy called Hugh Craig, if my memory serves me correctly, um, was looking at one of the the ways they try and prove that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare is this thing called the quantity myths. So people say, you know, mm. Shakespeare invented 1,700 words mm. and, and he uses 20,000 words. Um, so like, for example, today we would use about 50,000 words because we just, there there are just more words to use. <laughs> and But Craig, he went painstakingly to lots of word counting. And what he looked for in Shakespeare's work was the use of what he calls fresh words. So not words that are coined by Shakespeare, but the first instance of Shakespeare using that word. Mm, and he did okay. that for about 13 of contemporary writers, all male, of course. So there was one great woman, Mary <laughs> Sidney Herbert, shout out to her. And of course, just the one, mind. Yes, um, but but you know he didn't include her. Uh, But what he actually found out was that Shakespeare was it was kind of in the middle of that group of thirteen, because he he uses quite a lot of what are called common words, so the everyday words, Mm. so that he this was a man. You know, this is good evidence to support the man from Stratford wrote the plays. He was a man of the people. He understood the people. Like so, he wasn't just so. You can level the same argument. Could the aristocrat understand, you know, the base, if you like, in the same way? So the argument works both ways, actually. Yeah. And it also serves to reinforce this notion that he is he's an expert screenwriter. He's Mm. an expert Mm. in dialogue. You know, he he, he was an actor, you know, so this understood tone. Mm pause you know he, and he yeah. he played in a lot of or well, a couple of Ben Johnson's works he was given the principal character so he was good you know he understood mm. how relationships between people work on the stage yeah. absolutely have we have, so have you con- turned around and convinced yourself now Kate is that what's happened <laughs> <laughs> see this is what happens you know this is you know in, in 30 <laughs> minutes I begin you know I, I just yeah I mean no I'm we've gone full circle yeah we've gone yeah. full circle which is, uh, that is always a sign of a good argument. <laughs> <laughs> now, with that advice, we will leave you for this episode. Is that good advice? Is that what the advice we want to leave students with? Anyway, that is the advice that we leave you with. So thank you very much for talking no, about Shakespeare. Yeah, we shouldn't leave him with that advice. That's well, okay, not well, a good advice. Okay, well, well, you're going to have to come up well, with a genius position, piece of advice. Our position has changed from the beginning and that is the sign of a good argument supported with some evidence. <laughs> some tenuous evidence. <laughs> Absolutely. If, if it, you know, if you don't have any evidence, well then tenuous evidence is better than no evidence. Yes, is that, yeah. is that bit, that's the thing. Many that's references to diegetic sound and all that that work very good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like the worst place ever to end. But but end we must. So thank you so much to, to Kate and to Dean and to Bavin for joining me today. Um, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Join us next time for the next episode. Mm-hmm.